Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello, welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Today's guest is Debbie Osborne. She has a book called Raising Other People's Children, and she got a lot of experience from working as a as a social worker, being a single foster parent, and even diving off into the realm of law around all of that a bit. How are you doing today, Debbie? Doing fine. Thank you so much. Oh, man. So tell me, what first brought you into the foster care arena? Well, it was my work as a social worker. When I first got out of college, um, I had a degree in education and decided I didn't like the idea of being a teacher. Um, my my uh, group skills were not as good as my one-on-one skills. So I ended up um, moving into social work and working as a um, uh, probation officer with juvenile court in a metro Atlanta area. And that work brought me just face-to-face with the um, need for people to help raise kids and, and take care of kids. So what made you decide you wanted to be a social worker to begin with? Well, um, like I said, I'd gotten out of college with a degree in education. I've always enjoyed working with kids. My parents had worked with kids um, when I was growing up. They always had uh, various church ministries and camps and that sort of thing. And so I had sort of grown up in that. And then when I got out of school and started looking for um, a, a, uh, a paying job to support myself, um, my mother was working for, she was working in one of the uh, juvenile detention centers in Georgia. And so with that interest in my um, background in teaching, it was just a a natural fit to move into the one-on-one field. So how did that, how did that really impact your life as you stepped into that? I mean, you had obviously already seen some of that from your parents' work growing up with that. Did it really impact your life when you became personally involved in that way? Yes, it did. It, it completely changed my perspective on, um, I, well, on, on the system, on what was needed, on the, um, uh, the, the fact that so many of these kids, I, I found myself um, liking the kids more than their parents and realizing <laughs> that, if, 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 uh, that, that the most important thing for these kids was a, a, a stable family and um, lacking would be a stable situation with um, a trusted adult, someone that they could, could um, maybe connect with and, and learn from. And so I just felt the need to um, start, uh, start providing that where I could. So as you stepped in, you, you, I assume had some, a lot of real one-on-one interactions with these kids what was that like for you to to be the person kind of in charge of that moment where you're trying to help these kids now and 
and understanding their situation and trying to figure out how you can best serve them. Well, the first thing I had to come to grips with is the fact that I was not the person who was supposed to be there. That um, if if the world worked the way it should, um, I would not be involved in these kids' lives. And I worked with older kids and teenagers, so they were, were by that point in, in their um, development, um, very aware of how the world was supposed to work with a biological family and uh, stable and, and, and specifically their biological family. And um, so the, the fact that I was there in their mind was just a signal that, that something was terribly wrong with the world. And so their sense was that, um, that I was not supposed to be there. And in some cases, their sense was that I and the social worker um, were barriers to them getting to where they were supposed to be and getting their life back to normal. So, um, again, a lot of it depends on, on the age of the kids. The younger children were, were more accepting. The older kids had a much stronger sense of, of displacement and um, that, that I wasn't supposed to be there in their lives. So that was the first thing that I, that I had to come to grips with, was that it wasn't going to be a uh, Cinderella story with these kids and that I had to um, acknowledge their loss and understand where they were coming from. And in some cases... Um, we were able to establish a family and I've stayed in touch with them in the years since. And in other cases, um, I wasn't, they, they, um, I guess wandered off maybe the, the best phrase. And, um, so you, it, it was, um, it was not the, the script that I would have written, but it was the script that they had for their lives. So how many of those kids that you were in connection with have you been able to stay connected with through the years? Um, two that um, have become part of our family. And um, we, I, I've never had biological kids, but between um, foster kids and um, uh, step kids, um, my, my joke is that I've collected, I have a collection of seven kids and 10 grandkids now. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> I guess financially speaking, it's probably a lot easier to do it that way. So, well, yeah, it, <laughs> it, it makes it a little easier. We, um, uh, of course, you know, with, with so many kids and grandkids, I have to depend on my computer to remind me about birthdays and <laughs> anniversaries oh, yeah. and those kinds of things. <laughs> Well, we have seven kids of our own. I definitely need that that Google Calendar to tell me, hey, hey, pay attention. Uh -huh. <laughs> Today is an important day for a reason. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I admire people who who had to have that many kids all at once. I I was single, so I would have one or two kids at a time at the most. And then when I married my husband, um, he has five kids, but only two of them were still at home. Okay. Um, we added uh, one of my, my foster kids. Um, we, we took in um, that foster grandchild, um, 
but again, I've, I think my largest count has been three at a time. So that's, uh, that's my limit. We're not even down to three yet. Not yet. Maybe one day. It might Maybe happen. <laughs> you will enjoy we'll it when it gets there. <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking I'm going to really try to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll figure out the enjoyment piece there. Yes, yes, you will. So I'm curious, what really has driven you to become a part of the system? I mean, because you've been a foster parent, you've been a social worker, you've worked around the legal aspects, like you, you have been all over this. What's well, been like the because I guess this journey is it's a rocky journey, right? It's a stum- oh, yeah. it's a lot yeah, of stumbling blocks in the way, a lot of hard places, a yes. lot of difficult things, and in those moments, you have to have two things: you have to have something to fall back on that that helps you realize that what you're doing is the right thing, and you have to have something that con- convinces you to keep moving, that motivating piece, whatever it is that that drive. And so what, what are those for you? What, what do you fall back on in the hard moments and what makes you keep going? Well, there's, there's a couple of things um, that I fall back on. Um, I, I think the, um, one of the, the things that, that it's at my core is um, religious beliefs that, um, that this is what God wanted me to do. And this was, is how he wanted me to spend my time investing in other people. Um, the other thing I fall back on is um, uh, a the the second thing is a, a strong network. Um, I have a, a strong network of friends. Um, I, I'm very close to my brother and sister. Um, my husband and I have, have built a strong marriage, and I have a good relationship with my kids. So, um, whenever <laughs> whenever one of my foster kids um, you know, would would say, I hate you and I wish I weren't here and I will never accept you. I always had other places to go to for um, encouragement and for validation. So that that network and those core beliefs are the, the two things that that keep um, that helped me keep an even keel. Well, you said something really interesting there. And that you have that other place where you can you can receive your validation. And I, uh, I'm just curious if in your work as a social worker, if you saw a lot of foster parents who who do get their validation from that place. Is that is that something you've seen people struggle with? Yes, I have. And what, one of the problems that I think a lot of foster parents have is no one quite understands where you're you're coming from uh, they they tend to uh, they tend to treat you like you're you're some sort of saint um, and and you know I that has always made me uncomfortable because I, I definitely am not Mother Teresa and um, this is this is not why why I'm doing this so hey man um, I'm keenly aware the, of my unsainthood. Um, Yes, yes. I mean, there's so many, so many ways that I, I need to uh, get better, be be kinder, more patient, many, many things. Um, so I, I was always very uncomfortable with that from people who were who were not foster parents. Um, 
fortunately, my family, like I said, we, we had grown up with, with my parents helping kids. So my, my brother and sister were always very supportive and, and, uh, and, and, you know, like most siblings, they, they've never had any illusions about whether or not I'm a saint. So that, <laughs> that was, um, that to me was, was very important to have people who understood me as I was and, and still supported and accepted. Me. And uh, I think a lot of foster parents have trouble with that because their families, they think they're, they're, um, their families and friends, they either admire them excessively and, and think, well, you, you just have some sort of level of sainthood that, that I can never uh, aspire to. Um, or they, they think they're crazy and we'll get over this eventually. And so it, it is um, hard for foster parents, I think, to find that network of people who understand why they're doing this and why they keep doing this. Yeah, and I'm not entirely certain, but I think a lot of, at least some portion of the people that we've met over the years say things like that and, and, and approach it from exactly one of those two angles because otherwise, if, if we're not crazy and they're not crazy and we're not, and, and, and we're not like saints, we're just normal people and they're normal people, then somehow or another they feel guilty that they're not also a part of this, I think. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. Um, they'd rather put you on a pedestal that they don't aspire to, um, or just say that you're somehow different than them. Uh, and I, I do think that's part of it. Uh, and, and, and it's too bad because not, not everyone can make this kind of commitment. I'm, I'm a big fan of the, um, uh, one community, one child, you know, where people can help you. Um, by, by being respite care, for example, or helping with, birthday presents or uh, th there's any number of ways that people can support foster care without becoming a foster parent. There certainly is. There certainly is. There's a lot of ways that, that you can reach out and support. Not everybody is ready to do that. And that's one of the things that we talk about a lot. You know, we, we are so very into the idea of people helping kids, but if taking care of kids in your home is not your thing, if it does not set your soul on fire, my God, we do not want you doing it because <laughs> exactly. it, it exactly. takes a lot out of you to do it. It does. And, and you have to find ways to recharge your batteries and, and that network of, of people, um, self-care, I, I think is very important. And, and just understanding my, my husband and I, um, we're, we're old people now, so I don't think we'll be doing foster care anytime soon, but, um, we are looking at, for example, um, finding a group that works with, uh, mentoring children who have aged out of foster care and who need, um, mentors. They don't need parents, but they do need, um, a support network in, in the mentoring. So, um, I'm, I'm feeling that may be our, Whenever I get this book launched, that may be our next um, uh, phase of service. Um, so it's uh, people can do that. There's a lot of different areas without having to jump all in. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, 
anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. You know, a while back we talked to Justin and Alexis Black, the authors of Redefining Normal, and they talk about their story and they they were both. Oh, yes. Are you familiar with them? Yes, I know them actually. Um, I got to know them through a, 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 we've become friends through this foster care journey and their book is really amazing. Yeah. They're just an amazing couple of kids. Mm-hmm. Small world. Yeah, it is a small <laughs> world for sure. Uh, yeah. But, but you know, one of the things that Justin and I talked about when, when I interviewed them was that need for mentors. And you just, I just brought that up. By the way, if people are hearing our, our third co-host, he doesn't have much of value to add, but he, he does have a few noises while he eats his little puffs and drinks his bottle from time to time. So he's pretty cute though. He's pretty cute. So we put up with him and hopefully you don't mind the sound of a baby poking in and out here and there. If you do. Of course not. He, he adds color. Yeah. If anybody has a problem with that, sorry, but that's just that's just what we're doing today. We can't send him in the other room at, at nine months old. I think we'd we'd ask for a lot more problems. So we're just gonna keep him with us. But that's but right. I, I know that me and Justin talked about that mentorship thing and, and he talked about how important being uh, mentored by a handful of people in his life really was and how that helped him change the direction of his life and re reshape some of his own thoughts, reframe his experiences. And then begin to take the lessons he'd learned and transfer that onto the next generation and trying to help them as well. Um, how have you guys seen opportunities to be those mentors in your life? Well, um, a lot of it has been through um, just uh, being where the kids are. Um, and uh, I, again, back when I was a, a foster parent and, and a step parent, uh, I now as a, as a step parent, I have, have been fascinated with the research on resilience um, because I've worked with so many traumatized kids and, you know, there's the ACEs study and the, the trauma study. And um, I, I have been fascinated with the, the uh, social science and mental health studies um, on resilience, because one of the, the, unfortunate side effects of uh, the ACEs study and and learning about trauma is there's a tendency to think that trauma is destiny and that that kids um, are are forever uh, stuck at at where they are with their trauma. So one of the resilience studies shows, or a lot of the resilience studies, one of the factors, top factors is um, having a mentor and having someone outside the family. So When I realized as a foster parent, for example, that I could be that person outside their family, I I can never replace my kids' parents, but I could be that mentor for them. So that was one area where we found it. Um, Another area is just um, organizations, you know, coming alongside uh, groups of foster parents. Um, We have been able to help um, some foster parents um, just by providing an, an outlet, another adult for the kids to talk to. Um, so the, there's, uh, the, I'm, I'm a big believer in communities of people coming alongside foster parents and helping them. And then, like I said, now we're um, investigating groups of uh, that, that groups that are dedicated towards mentoring 
children who have aged out of foster care. Well, you know, the numbers around kids who've aged out are frightening. I forget oh, the exact terrible. Yeah, the, the exact percentage slips my mind, but the chance of a kid ending up out of foster care and going into a healthy life and graduating college and never having ended up homeless or in the justice system somewhere, the numbers are just they're disheartening to say the least. They're staggering, right? So where do you see your ability to help that help those kids come out and then find find their way into a healthy, happy life where they can become productive members of society as opposed to the way that we've been doing it for decades? Well, I think it, it, it's very difficult um, to, to know exactly how because the foster care system, um, you know, government agencies – like every organization, they, they will protect themselves. That's what organizations do. So for for many, many years, they did that by requiring um, everyone who came in contact with kids to have criminal background checks and undergo um, uh, uh, training and, and have all sorts of restrictions that, that made it impossible for um, – Back when I first started, it was impossible for me to let one of my foster kids go to a sleepover uh, unless the um, parents of that child had um, uh, had gone through all of the, the hoops that were required for being a foster parent. So we've had some changes. You know, the reasonable and prudent parenting standard now helps a lot with that, that, that you, foster parents can make those sort of decisions. E- even then, the, the rules are are designed um, partly to, to help the kids, partly to <laughs> partly to keep lawyers like me from suing the agencies. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that uh, I, I, none of that, I don't mean any of that as criticism. It's just it's just the way it works now. But it is still very difficult. You still have to fight a lot against systems in order to find help for what children need. Um, mental health issues, we really, really need to come up with more mental health for children who've had trauma, particularly foster kids. And um, that's, that has been something that is woefully lacking. Um, I, I'm not a therapist. I don't have the first idea how to do therapy with any of the kids that I've um, parented. But um, there were many times that I needed an expert to walk alongside me and help come up with plan for this child's particular triggers or that child's uh, particular hangups. So that's, that's one area that we really need to change the system and foster parents need a lot of support from that. Um, and then, as you know, with seven kids, you, you need people who will babysit once in a while and um, who will let you uh, take your wife out so that you can concentrate on your marriage once in a while rather than, than, um, than, than taking care of kids. Yeah, that's been that's been a struggle for us to, to always figure out and understand how we can do that. Because, I mean, right now we kind of have built in babysitters. We have mm-hmm. kids of, of the age that, that can keep an eye on the other ones. And as long as we are 
we are smart enough to to really manage how far away from home we go. It's not a big right. deal, you know. We we can we can kind of stay within a few miles and and be home in five minutes if something goes sideways. But you know, we have a really really responsible thirteen year old daughter who who does a great job of being able to occasionally. We'll put the younger ones to bed, and you know, once once the troublemakers go to bed, and I mean the, the yeah. cute little kids—that's what I meant to call them. Once they go to bed, they're they're really, you know, they're not too hard for her to manage while we leave for an hour and build some of that that time into our schedule so that we can have have that relationship building time. But you're right—that's something that's really difficult for foster parents, and then all the pieces and parts because you mentioned the T word, you know, trauma. It's such a deep thing for that goes through so many of these kids' lives that we are just kind of just on the beginning edge of learning how to to deal with some of it, not how to how to cure it or fix it or anything like that, but just learning how much it impacts kids and and how little we know about it. Well, it's it's also incredibly difficult um, for working with the kids because we as adults, at least in our society, we we tend to take, we, we tend to go to, to or the kids, um, and we tend to go to one extreme or the other. One of the extremes is um, what one of my kids called counting up victim points. The other extreme that I've seen kids go to is they just completely deny their trauma and, and just say, I just want to be normal, and that's all I want to do. And they just work incredibly hard. To, to put a Band-Aid over that wound and, and let it build up a scab and try to be normal. Um, you know, for teens and preteens particularly, all they want is to be, um, they want to be like everybody else and be individuals at the same time. But the last thing they want to do is deal with their trauma. So it's a, um, it, it's difficult to find that balance for kids between acknowledging their trauma and empowering them to move forward when either denying it or, or uh, marinating in it is, is what they tend to do. And uh, our society doesn't quite have a good narrative for helping them move forward from it. Yeah. Trauma is one of those things that we don't really understand just how, how difficult it is and how difficult it can be for kids to learn to, uh, learn to walk their way through because if you've been around a teen very long, as soon as you try and help them there, they usually want to tell you how they're just fine and you don't know what you're talking about. And it leaves that as a real gap in, in the ability to have right. that conversation with them. Right. Right. It, it does. Um, and again, addressing trauma is painful. And so there's a real tendency to just deal with it in the least painful way possible. You know, that's, that's a really accurate statement that, and not just on their end, but I think on our end as well, it's really easy for us to see a kid who's been through something and who has made some strides. And then just, just like it's assume that they're, they're more likely to not need that extra, that extra help because they haven't been through too much, um, or because they've, they've dealt with what they've been through fairly well already and we sometimes forget that and i know that that we've had kids who have been in and out of counseling for a lot of years we just started one of our kids back in with a therapist recently because we saw some things and we went oh hang on i see behaviors that i think might be related to some some old stuff 
And so let's go find a good play therapist, you know, this kid's at the right age. That's the kind of therapy that, that is good for him. And so, so we're, we've have him actually going to, to hang out and see Miss Becky on a regular basis. And as far as he knows, it's a place to go play. And he got to meet a new lady who, who plays with him and they do their thing. And, and we just, we just take it from there for now, but that's going to be probably a part of his life going forward for a lot of years is, is being in and out of some counseling as he needs it. But it's, if you don't have that done before they become teens. Then. Well, right. You, you have to lay the foundation, have to lay the framework. And then the, the other thing is recognizing with counseling that um, it's, it, if you think in terms of, of medical um, type stuff, um, a, a lot of kids would get into counseling, they feel good and they quit um, the same way that, that, People tend to not finish the 10 days of antibiotics because they feel better and they don't need it. But if you don't take the entire 10 days, it's going to come back. Um, the, the other analogy I like to use is that, that um, trauma is not terminal, but it is chronic. And so when you hit life changes or something new or certain markers, um, then it's going to, to rear its head again. And, and you may have to go back for a, another 10 days of antibiotics, if you will. Um, and, and there's no shame in that. It's just a, a way to deal with it, and it's necessary. But kids just don't like to – they just don't like to go through that. They, they just uh, – it's not just kids. Adults don't like to do the painful stuff. We, we just like to, uh, as, as I tend to do with my doctors, plan A is just ignore it and hope it gets better. And that's always the plan that works out, right? Of course. Well, it works out often enough to keep me doing it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know I know what you're talking about exactly there. You know, I'm in a couple dad's groups and uh, one in particular dad's group where we have some, we have weekly meetings and we talk pretty in depth with the things that, that these guys are going through and, and how they're trying to become a better dad and, and what they're working on and, and understanding that. And it is something that has come to be a bit of an amazement for me. Just how many of these guys are dealing still with childhood trauma that was never resolved because, you know, we work with foster kids and kids through adoption and, and that's a place where you will find plenty of trauma. That, that it needs to be worked on and resolved and worked through. But a lot of these guys were never in foster care. They weren't adopted, but they had their own levels of trauma somewhere else in their life that hasn't been dealt with. And those significant issues that come from your family of origin tend to pop back up years later, decades later, even in their own marriages in places where they never would have expected it. Now they have to come through and work right. on it. And that's always, that's, that's always a challenge. Well, for these right. Guys. Because I all we all we've done with the wound is just let it scab over, um, and and it looks fine, but it's still it's still under the surface there doing its damage. Yeah, it's it's kind of like way back when, go all the way back to the Civil War when they figured out how to how to cut a shot leg off, you know, amputate part of the leg and and get it to stop bleeding, and then the gangrene would That's set right. in, right? Because the, the true right. problem coming up right. was never really truly addressed. And I think that's that's a good example of how our lives are affected by our childhoods. 
Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook, and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. So, Right, in, in ways that we, we don't even realize. Yeah, so tell me, how, uh, how have, has your life been been really affected as you have walked this journey and dealing with foster kids you know step kids you know and and led you into this this journey of writing a book about how what you learned from foster kids has really translated into all aspects of parenting well the um i think the 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 big journey is working with my kids has it has made me more patient it has made me more empathetic um, I'm not naturally an empathetic person. I tend to be very left brain. Um, my, my sister is a counselor and says that that I would be a terrible counselor because I'm from the rip off the Band-Aid school of therapy. And my my, uh, <laughs> my my session, she says, would probably be about five minutes of, um, OK, so we've established you make stupid decisions. Quit making stupid decisions. <laughs> Problem solved. You know, and, I think we might have gone to the same school therapy. <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> so working with my kids has, has made me realize that that people need to be seen and heard, and I have to listen to them. Even if what they're saying doesn't make sense to me or sounds silly or any number <laughs> of other adjectives, um, that that it's never a waste of my time. And so uh, the the importance of letting people tell their story is is something that that um, kids have taught me. And then the other thing is the importance of not stopping with empathy. You, you still have to. Um, I still have to be the adult in the room. I still have to give them what they need and not what they want. And um, that has been a journey for me. Is um, being empathetic and caring, but being willing to be the bad guy if necessary um, in in their narrative in order to give them what they need. So um, there's just a, a, a lot of those kinds of lessons um, that I have learned. And, and those carried over into my uh, parenting, um, you know, with my stepkids. I, I never made the mistake that, that I would have if I had not been a, a foster parent first, which was, um, there's always a real tendency when you, when you're a step parent to, to want to fix things and to fill in the spaces and replace their biological parent. And, um, we, we can never do that. Um, we, you know, the, as, as I've said to my, um, stepsons, I'm, I'm not your mother. You're my sons, but I'm not your mother. So we have to be willing to make that one-way commitment and not try to replace um, the biological parents um, in in foster care. Um, even if we're fostering to adopt, um, they still have that that tie with their biological parents that uh, 
well, we're not we're not helping them if we try to replace that or break that tie. So that was one of the parenting things that I learned. Um, like I said, we're we're not the people who are supposed to be there, and and that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> that last part is really important. We're we're in the middle of, it of is. dealing with with that whole topic right now with one of our kids. Is yeah, I, you're right, dude. I'm not your dad. You know, right. you, you share ninety nine point nine something percent of DNA with me, but that's just because we share that with all human beings. But we right. do not have a, that that last little bit that that puts us biologically connected. I am not your biological dad. I am not your biological mother, and and well, obviously I'm not, but Amanda's not. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know, she would probably agree if she was sitting here, but she has to run off and pick up kids, so we're going to lose her for the rest of this conversation. But but that's something that we've had to to work our way through, and and for some kids that we've had, you know, some of our adopted kids. That conversation has gone really well. And for some of them, they really struggle with that. Right. And that's where we have to say to them, I, look, I, I understand. I am not your parent. Um, and that's okay. I will be here and I will care about you and I will be the, the person in charge setting the rules as long as you're here. And, um, Whatever role you will accept me in, that's the role that I will be in. So how do you handle it when a kid does not want to accept that role? Um, you just don't go away. You know, um, you, you're, you're, I'm not the person who's supposed to be there, but I'm the person who is there. And you should never apologize for being the person who is there. It, it may not be the way it's supposed to be, but it's the way it is. And so my attitude, maybe just because I'm naturally a stubborn person, um, has always been to be, uh, don't engage, don't argue, don't try to convince them of anything. Just be like the law of gravity. Just, just don't ever go away. Just be there, be consistent and, um, enforce the rules in a very logical, uh, logical consequences type manner. I'm a big believer in logical consequences Um, because most of these kids, they're not going to trust you. And the only way that they will ever learn to trust you is if you just don't go away. And um, so you, you control what you can, which is your attitude and your responses and try to be as, um, stable and predictable and boring as possible. You know, I really like what you said. Just be like gravity. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the, one of the things that we've talked about with some of our own kids is not only is it just, Hey, I'm going to be here. That's just a fact of life. You're going to have to deal with the fact that I'm here, but right. I've been asked why. And let me tell you something. If you want to understand gravity, why does gravity work? I would I would encourage you to figure it all out and then publish a couple papers. You'll be a you'll be a genius. People will love you because nobody can really understand gravity very well. We understand that it happens. We don't necessarily really understand the hows and whys of it, right? Right. And you don't have to understand why, you know, well, 
they don't have to understand why you do the things you do. You better have that figured yeah. out. As a foster parent, you better have it figured right. out. Right. And 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 we have to um, we have to be there no matter what their attitude is. I mean, they've, I, I I hear I hear foster parents and and other parents complain to me from time to time that you know, they, these kids are so ungrateful. They just don't appreciate everything we do for them. And my response is, well, yeah, that that's kids. Um, up to a certain age, kids are self-absorbed and not grateful and don't understand what you're doing for them. And in fact, when they do understand too much about the, the adult stuff that goes into making the world the way it is, when they do worry too much about the electricity bill or the gas bill, we we call it neglect. So a big part of our job is to do stuff and just not expect anything in return. Again, like the law of gravity, we're just there and we're, we're doing what they need done. Yeah. I really like that because they can't understand it and that's okay, but they can certainly feel it. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, like like kids learn about the law of gravity and the laws of physics by testing the limits, um, you know, banging their spoon on their chair or, or any number of things. Um, our kids are going to test our commitment to them. And um, if, if we're going to be like the law of gravity, we expect them to test us. And that is just part of the package. You know, that's a... <laughs> That's an interesting part of that uh, part of that comparison because what is all of sports, right? But but us competing <laughs> against the laws of gravity in front of people, right? right. Whether it's throw a ball, hit a ball, run fast, catch a ball, um, you know, whatever it is, it's it's all showing trying to show how good we are at overcoming parts of the laws of gravity, and we have an entire right. multi bazillion dollar industry based around that. And, even, and watching people test the laws of gravity. Mm-hmm. I mean, even as adults, we still do it. And so that that's that's an interesting. I never thought about it that way before. That's uh, yeah, that's really interesting. So as you've you've been through this journey. You've dealt from all the different angles that you you have dealt from, and helped all these kids. What is what is some of the best advice that you can give? To, I guess, at least, especially foster parents or potential foster parents, because that's a lot of who we talk to is people who are in foster, or I'm sorry, who are already on the, the, the journey of being, being a foster family or becoming a foster family. What's some of the best advice you can give to, to parents who are, who are in the trenches or getting ready to step in? Um, I, I think the most important thing is, um, to, uh, I guess the, the first thing I would say is don't expect miracles. Um, we, we tend to, um, tend to expect that we're going to fix all of these problems. And, um, there's a lot of movies out there, um, about it. And, and I love movies about foster parents. I, I really do. But, um, Hollywood has to have a happy ending and it, it, we may get a miracle, but we may not. And so we have to be willing to make the commitment to be there no matter what the outcome of our story is. So um, that would be the probably the most important thing that I would say is our commitment is, is one way. 
It is to be there and to take care of the kids and to not worry about whether or not we're going to have the relationship. Um, the second thing I would say is if you don't expect anything from kids in, I'm, I'm talking about gratitude and relationship and those kind of things. Obviously, um, I, I, I do believe in having high standards for kids as far as respect and, and, and those kinds of things. But as far as the relationship goes, if we don't have any expectations, we really are more likely to have a better relationship with them. Um, because kids are, are just like us. If, if we give them the freedom to reject or accept us and it doesn't make any difference in our commitment to them, then they're more likely to trust us and believe us. Um, it doesn't always happen, though, but it is more likely to happen. You know, one of the themes I really hear you talking about is understanding our commitment to them and uh, mm -hmm. understanding where our commitment comes from and what we expect in return and what kind of attachments we have to that to that return um what would you call right. it yeah the, the, to to how they behave in regards to us and the, you know to being a, attached to the idea that they need to be grateful for for what we give them as opposed to a commitment right. without expectations right Right. Now, I, I think without expectations is important. That doesn't mean unlimited commitment. I, I think some people kind of make the mistake of, of saying we have to, to love our kids unconditionally, which means we commit to them unconditionally. But, you know, healthy relationships are, don't have unconditional commitments. Um, I, I use the, the story about my husband and I are are committed to each other but if one of us becomes abusive or starts running guns for the mafia then we're done um healthy relationships always have boundaries and so with our kids we just we have to be clear to them i'm committed to you but i don't tolerate drugs in the house i'm committed to you but but you know conversations i used to have with runaways i'm committed to you and this is your home as long as you choose to stay here but the next time you leave, I'm not taking you back. Um, that those, it, it wasn't about our relationship. It was simply about boundaries of, of what was acceptable and what was not. So those, those are two very important, but very different concepts. Yeah. Because uh, you know, and, and you mentioned runaways. That's a big thing in, in the foster care system. Um, oh yeah, that happens a lot. And I, I'm not going to say that that I'm here to give you the answers as to how to deal with that because I'm not. <laughs> Period. I'm right. just not. I right. don't have that information. You know, but for because if you're foster parent very long, it's a good. And depending on the the age of the kids you deal with, most of the kids we've dealt with are fairly young. Um, right. Personally, right. I, I can be a three-year-old at heart really fast. I can be a three-year-old at <laughs> head, too. <laughs> Ask my wife. And I love that age right. group. It's a good one for me. But, um, but you know, you're not going to see a lot of runaways at three years old. But right. if you have 13-year-olds, right. 15-year-olds, 17-year-olds, you, you, you're probably going to experience some of that. How have you counseled parents to get through that? Well, the first thing you have to understand with runaways is it's a coping mechanism. And um, it, it's what they do. Runaways run away. Um, that, that's the saying in, in the field. So um, it takes a lot of therapy and a lot of love and concern for 
um, to, to tr- teach them new coping mechanisms. So you have to understand that's, that's really what you're doing here is you're helping them develop a new coping mechanism. It's not a, it's not a logical process. Um, it's a, it's a trigger and a response. So then the other thing is, um, you know, I, I, I had runaways. Um, it, it just, it depends. Some of them, I went after them. I knew where they were. Um, some of them, it, it happened so often that I just said, when they come back, they come back. Um, I had one child who, gosh, she was back and forth and back and forth and then um, was gone for a long time. When she decided she wanted to come back, she had aged out of the system. Um, well, she was close enough that the, the foster care system just didn't want to deal with her anymore. and. So I, I let her come back and stay with me, but that was when I started saying, okay, you're, um, you have to take on adult responsibilities. I'm, I'm not, um, supporting you anymore. And so, um, if you're not in school, you have to be paying one of the utility bills. You know, I, I made it manageable for him, trying to give him a, a glide path to adulthood. Um, she was fine and then she ran away again. So it takes a lot of patience and really um, that there's not a lot you, you can do except decide how many times you want to take them back um, because runaways are going to run away. And um, I've, I've never been one to say you have to lock all the windows and lock all the doors and you keep them from doing this and, and, and that. I just, I've, I've never found a way to, to stop a, a child who's committed to a course of action. So I, I just always tried to bring it out in the open and say, look, this is, this is the plan. Um, I know you're going through a tough time. I know your impulse is to run away from it and, and, um, make yourself uh, over again and start fresh. Um, it's not going to work. It's never worked before. But if if you if you choose to stay here, here's how we will deal with it. If you choose to leave, here's how we will deal with it. Yeah, those hard boundaries. Um, for a lot of parents, that's really hard to, to handle those hard boundaries. I imagine you're, oh, you're kind of wired similarly to me because, um, I'm not from the school of pragmatism. I am actually an instructor. Um, <laughs> I grew up in that, yeah. with that mentality in my home. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she, she grew up in a different world and, and she is definitely more empathic than I am most days. Um, mm-hmm. I've had to really work to learn to build that skill set over the years and I've become much better at it. But at the end of the day, my first impulse is, Hey, this is not that complicated. If you stop doing stupid things, then stupid things will stop happening to you. Your life will get better. It's not that complicated. It's just hard. Let's do some hard things together. But that's never met, you know, that's never met with a whole lot of acceptance from kids. No. And from my wife's side, you know, where she is much more empathic. It's it's really difficult for her to lay those hard boundaries and stand by them. It's been one of the dichotomies in our relationship. We've had to we've had to work hard to resolve for a lot of years. We've gotten really good at it now, but it's it's taken a couple decades of work to get there. What do you say to parents who who have that mentality like I had say ten years ago, who say, Hey, it's easy, do this, do that, 
and it will be easy. And find that's not very effective. It, well, first of all, it's not easy. I mean, th- think how hard it is for us to change our habits. Um, the, just, just uh, you know, giving up chocolate for Lent is is a big deal. So, it, it, for for kids who have been traumatized, um, their coping mechanisms are things that have, in many cases, helped them survive to this to get to this point. So, um, it's not to be easy for them to give up. And the second thing is, it's working at a level that we we can't reach by logic. And um, it seems very logical to us, and it, it 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 may seem logical to them. They may be able to parrot the words, but what is extremely difficult for them is um, acting on it and and putting it into action. And um, so it's it's the goal. Well, first of all, it's always hard, like you said. Let's let's do some hard things together. Is, is the way we need to approach the kids. But I also had to realize it was not as simple as I thought it was. Um, it is all mixed up with a lot of trauma, a lot of emotions, a lot of, a, a lot of primal fight, flight, or freeze impulses that you just cannot reach with words or logic. And once you realize that, then... Um, you just have to learn. You have to work with kids and take it one tiny little step at a time. And um, they, they just cannot comprehend getting from point A to point B in, in one grand scheme like adults can. Yeah, my understanding of, of human psychology is that that neocortex, a place where you build all those sorts of thoughts, those future planning, a lot of that super logical stuff um, doesn't really develop until the neocortex is finished developing around, uh, depending on the person you listen to, somewhere between about 22 and 26 years old. And when you take mm-hmm. a kid of trauma who's been, you know, perhaps stunted at some point in their early development for a while, that may take even longer. And it's so challenging. Yes, it will. And, yep. And on some level, when we say just do this, we're saying just fly. You know, we, we, we might as well be asking them to fly. Yeah. <laughs> do you know how hard that is in the moment? Maybe you do. You are a foster parent, too, and a social worker. But in the moment, no. when you have a kid yeah. who won't just do the easy yeah. thing that's maybe not so easy, that's. That's yes. a moment that's so hard to navigate with a kid who you're basically asking them to give you a, a dissertation in Chinese and they're looking at you like, um, right. I can barely speak English. Right, right. Um, or even worse, they're, they're yelling at you and slamming doors. And, you know, you've got emotions on, on both sides. Um, one thing that I talk about in my book that, that I discovered one time and, and, and have put into practice is um, I call it disaster planning um, sort of like the Red Cross is is wonderful because they have a standard operating procedure for hurricanes and floods um, those of us who are foster parents we, we can put in a disaster plan for runaways um, for you know kids who draw on the walls for, for various things and um, 
so you learn to one of the things that I learned was in the moment to make to, to discipline myself and make myself say something as a placeholder, not not to try to solve the problem then, but just to give a placeholder. And and it, it came up one night with one of my foster daughters. Um, it, it's a long story. But anyway, I um, um, got up and and discovered um, her her boyfriend hiding in the closet. Um, while she was trying to distract me and I, you know, managed to stay polite and kick him out and tell him to come back later during, um, daylight hours. And, and I just turned to her and I said, okay, look, I, you are grounded until you're 35 and we're going to discuss this tomorrow. And that was all I would say to her at the moment because <laughs> I knew that anything else I said would be really bad. Um, so that was an, an and and I've used that since with teenagers. You're you're grounded till you're 35, and we will discuss this tomorrow. And what that has done for them is let them know, all right, this is a big deal, and I'm taking it seriously. But we're we're not dealing with it right now. Yeah, because in that moment, I'm not always great with dealing with it, right? Right. Oh, anything I come up with in that moment is really terrible. I mean, it seems like it makes sense in the moment, but <laughs> right. in right. retrospect, I've always gone back and, and realized that right. whatever it was I had to say probably is going to build regrets and learning to shut up. And and I right. I like the idea of having a placeholder like that, that, that allows them to see that, you know, this is a big deal. Um, and maybe this one thing I'm saying right here is obviously a little bit overboard, but we'll talk about it later. Right, right. Yeah. And that was why, you know, when I, when I every time I've used that and we come back with the kids later, they said, yeah, I, I, I knew it was a big deal. And, and I knew you didn't really mean 35. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because by the time you're 35, I will have kicked you out of my house. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I tell all my kids, bio step, adopted, whatever. My goal is not to raise kids that are living here forever. My goal is to raise productive members yeah. of society. I want you to go out and be somebody. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I've had kids, you know, like I said, I, I've had um, uh, kids age out of the system. I've had foster kids um, move back in. I've had uh, step kids move back in, you know, the, the refilled nest syndrome. And, and I'm always glad to have them. But I've just always had a rule. If you're not in school, you have to be contributing financially. And uh, I, I usually don't like taking money from them and making them pay rent because that just leads to a whole lot of problems. Um, but I hand over one of the utility bills and um, I always have a backup plan. I once had a, a child who didn't get around to paying the gas bill and so, you know, hot water was cut off and I just stayed out of it and showered at the gym for a week until they got it worked out. Um, but I, I like that for getting kids to learn how the real world works. It's not between me and them if they don't pay their rent. It's between them and the cable company or whatever bill they were supposed to pay. Maybe you need to make it the internet bill because, as it turns out, today's kids can't survive without internet. That's the, that's the first one that I turn over these days. 
because, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I can go to my office <laughs> if I need the Internet. <laughs> but they don't have another avenue to be able to play Xbox That's online. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It, it matters more to them than it does to me. <laughs> Well, that's a great advice, and I really appreciate your time today, Debbie. Um, I think we're going to have to cut this short because we just had a really nasty storm blow in, and I need to go check on um, what I have going on out here because I don't know if you guys heard that, but oh my goodness, my whole house just shook. And yeah, better go, and I apologize for the internet connection here. I'm not sure what happened, but... Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. No, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and your and your time with us. And um, we'll, we'll look forward to airing this here in the near future. And I'll put the links up on the uh, show notes. And just as a side note for anybody listening, Apple Podcast has done something weird. So if you listen to this on Apple, all my show notes, the links do not work. So if you just go to fostercarenation.com, Click on the podcast blog button at the top left corner and you'll find it there. And all those, all those notes will work. All the links will work there. I need to, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to get Apple to get that fixed. I've talked to a few people and realized that this is actually an issue they have on a number of their shows for some reason. So maybe there's a setting I need to push, but we'll get that all figured out. But in the meantime, you can just use fostercarenation.com to, to find that information and then be able to, uh, be able to go in there and find the links of everything including the the book and and, and all of your uh, your social media stuff we'll have links to that on there so people can connect with you great thank you very much i appreciate your time okay foster care nation thank you for listening to debbie's story now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community be sure to come back next week We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you would like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com or at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening.